Aaron, you're a ML PhD student at Georgia Tech, a research intern at Google, and a researcher at OpenAI. At Eleuther, you've been working on a Dolly reproduction, which later became Lion, and you proposed GPTJ, a JAX-based GPT-3-like model whose performance is on par with GPT-3 6 billion on various downstreaming tasks. You're also well known for being one of the two AKs, where the legend says that if a deep learning paper is important, one of the two AKs will, uh, will have tweeted about it. Your name was mentioned before on the podcast as one of the persons who have convinced Ethan Caballero that scaling will turn out to be important. Thanks, Heron, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me today. Um, so let's start with the legend of the two AKs. So who is the this other AK and why do people say that uh, following the two of you is enough to understand uh, deep learning research? Yeah, basically we uh, we scan all the archive papers, archive machine learning papers every day. And we uh, tweet about them with some summary and visualization. And yeah, we, we've been doing it for several years and we became, uh, we got more and more followers and that's probably why um, everyone follow us to, you know, uh, get the grasp of the latest research. How do you manage to read like so many papers, writing all of the summaries uh, on Twitter? What's your process on a daily basis? So I, I basically check uh, archive CSV uh, around 6 p.m. Pacific time every day. And I skim all the titles and if the title interests me, then I, I read the abstract. Then if I'm still interested, then I, I would skim their tables and figures. And if I think the paper is promising, then I would, uh, I would tweet the paper with short summary and visualization. He tweets much, many more than I do uh, because, well, he tries to uh, tweet as many good papers as possible while I try to tweet the ones I think the best. So yeah, he spent much uh, more time on that than I do. And yeah, um, I, I think that that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, how much time do you spend every day, would you say? Uh, about up to 30 minutes. I wouldn't spend more than that. Uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm a researcher, so uh, whether I tweet it, about it or not, I have to skim all the archive papers anyway. So I think the ta this time investment is totally worth it. Okay. So, yeah, how many abstracts do you end up like reading every day? Would you say like 10, 50? Yeah, 100? it really depends on the day. Uh, sometimes it's very, um, the field is very productive. Like yesterday, I read like 10 abstracts, uh, but I usually read only like three abstracts. Yeah, I, I have probably because I have very uh, specific taste for papers. I'm more biased toward uh, NLP papers, for example. Yeah, to, to go back to the reason why you're here today, um, you were tweeting uh, as every day, and one of the tweets you wrote was uh, an answer to my uh, AGI political compass, so the, the latest one. And you were saying that you were not on the on the compass because um, you were higher than Sam Altman or something more extreme than his position. 
I know this is a joke, <laughs> and I'm sorry to bring something from Twitter on on a podcast, uh, but maybe could you summarize your take uh, for uh, you know the listeners that are not on Twitter every day? Oh yeah, um, basically what I say is something like so. so I'm, it said is that I'm not worried about AI alignment problems, and I think I said I don't consider this task of alignment to be any different from any other hard ML task. But uh, as I, as we talked about, uh, I think I am I'm wrong about this. <laughs> yeah, so we we can talk about it later. And I think I also say um, we should focus on the long term, uh, which we agree. I guess. And scaling is important, but unlike Ethan, I don't think it's all you need. And I don't know about AGI, but I think superhuman level, uh, recursively self-improving language model may be possible somewhere around 2028 to 2038. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of disagreement on Twitter between, um, long, focusing on the long term or focusing on the near term. And I think there's a bunch of confusion because for people who have short AI timelines, uh, their long term is kind of the near term. So for you, like 2028, 2038, it's kind of the long term future, right? Because things is, are going to be a lot different then. So, and yeah, people are also confused about definitions. So AGI, artificial general intelligence, or human level, or super intelligence. So, Maybe just to ground the discussion a bit, um, could you give your definition of AGI? So what's the definition you think about when you see that word on, on Twitter? Yeah, so um, I'm very interested in AGI, but uh, to be honest, I'm not an expert on it. So I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm trying to learn about it. So I don't know if my terminology or definition is correct, but to me, AGI is something like model that can recursively improve itself and can perform any task, at least as well as humans do. Um, personally, I'm... Oh, yeah, yeah go ahead, sorry. Yeah. No, um, I, I was just going to say that, you know, so if we think about, like, human level, mm -hmm. not all humans are capable of writing ML code or thinking about AI. If, if you just take someone, some average human on the street, they will not be able to yeah. improve an AI or self-improve. So yeah, I think one of the definitions, um, sorry. Yeah, one of the reasons people give for why an AI would be able to self-improve if it was human level is that a human given like enough time and memory could be able to like read all those archive papers and you know, come up with another solution, um, assuming like our, you know, like there's not like a, a problem in the architecture of of humans that, um, you know, would make it impossible to like um, improve or something. Um, so yeah, I guess that's kind of the, one of the reason people might like uh, not make a distinction between those two, like human level and um, you know, recursively self improvement, um, but. Yeah, I think that's like a reasonable guess to like put those very close. Yeah. So when I say human level, um, just like many other people, I think I'm saying that uh, as well, uh, doing ta each task as well as 
uh, top human experts. So not not like average human. You know, average humans, like you said, you cannot really write machine learning papers. Oh, oh, did, uh, I, I don't remember whether you said that or yeah, but that, that's what I mean. So yeah, um, uh, that's basically what I meant. So, so in particular, I'm interested in uh, AGI's capability to do research because uh, that's basically uh, research, doing research is basically uh, well, doing ML research is uh, basically recursive self improvement. And also, you know, um, it can advance other uh, areas of uh, science, science or, yeah. So I think, so as, as long as a machine learning model can do machine learning research as well as humans do, I think uh, that's, that leads to AGI uh, eventually without any human intervention. So uh, human level machine learning research is AGI complete in some sense. And I'm trying to make language model do machine learning research. Um, yeah, I think that's a valid path to AGI, even though there are many other paths. Yeah, just to clarify the definitions, when people say AGI complete, they usually mean you need AGI to reach that point. What you're saying is doing ML research enables human level AI, right? Or AGI. So, so you're, you're more saying like it implies, right? It's, um, being good at ML research and being able to do as much ML research as you want implies AGI. Is that what, what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. And I think, so I agree with some version of that, but then it depends on what you consider to be ML research. So for instance, is building like ML hardware and, you know, transistors and, um, you know, um, building like factories that produce like electricity that, um, that would power those, you know, ML hardware. Like, is, is that all ML research? Where do you draw the line? Yeah. Uh, by human level machine learning research, I mean, uh, to be able to replace pretty much every ML research stuff, uh, ML research project. So, uh, including hardware, software. Yeah. Um, that's what I meant. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess my take is that, um, you know, the, the economy is very complex and you need like energy to, to do things and robots to build things. And so the kind of the task that would so more like the intelligence level to be able to reproduce like all that branch of the economy that builds computers is kind of um, automatic, automating like 10% of, of what humans are able to do right now. So if, if you really wanted to like self-improve and build bigger and bigger computers without like having to call a human to do the task for you, then you would need to be pretty close to AGI already. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, given what we said about recursive self-improvement uh, requiring like hardware and robots building the hardware, um, would you say like recursive self-improvement will arrive much later than you know ML research in archive papers? Oh, you mean um, being able to do to write ML papers? 
Right, or yeah, being able to write the papers and maybe like run experiments by yourself without like actually like improving your hardware. Yeah, agreed. I think software improvement comes comes much earlier than hardware improvement. Uh, but I think so. Uh, given if you look at uh, the past uh, ML research and scaling, most of this scaling comes from additional funding, but uh, and some of the scaling comes from hardware improvement. But uh, I think like a lot of improvement simply comes from software uh, improvement, like uh, it, improvement in design, like the transition from LSTM to transformer, or like scale, uh, scaling, optimal scaling strategy. So I think there's a lot of things uh, it, um, AIs can do simply by improving the software. And yeah, just to go back to what you said before about scaling is not all you need. Um, yeah, where do you say you disagree with uh, Ethan Caballero on that? Obviously, scaling is very important. And if you look at the result of Palm over, well, smaller Palm or other models, then you can see that the improvement is huge. And I think that's a very big indication that we still haven't exhausted all the space for improvement from coming from scaling. But uh, I wouldn't say scaling is all you need because, um, as as I talked about, uh, the improvement coming from uh, uh, performance improvement coming from uh, uh, model design improvement uh, is huge. Like uh, the most important one is improvement in scaling strategy, or uh, called optimal scaling strategy. Uh, for example, OpenAI's paper, um, that like brings like, uh, from 10 to 100 times of speed up. I mean, so basically the model, uh, optimally scaled up, uh, performs as well as the mod model suboptimally scaled up, uh, using 10, from 10 to 100 times of computes. But this was not a, really, um, this result is not really, uh, it was demonstrated, uh, but uh, technically this is possible. So, so yeah, and also, um, you know, the, uh, the improvement coming from VQVA, I mean, DALI 1 to DALI 2, I think this huge leap is not possible simply by uh, increasing the computational budget spent on DALI 1. So, um, this is probably because I think this is because uh, there's a fundamental bottleneck with the design of VQVA or DALI one. So, um, so there are some of the things that you cannot simply overcome with additional uh, by adding more copies. Yeah. So, what was the paper you mentioned where you go from? A 10x improvement to uh, 100x, like the you, you said the OpenAI paper. Oh uh, yeah, scaling laws for neural language models. So that's like a way of scaling your your models um, optimally, and what you're saying is that you cannot just sc scale without thinking about the optimal scaling. Is is that what what you're basically saying? Yeah, that's what, uh, basically 
not using this kind of principled way of scaling was common uh, is a common practice before this paper. But after this, uh, basically most many of the big projects try to follow this scaling now, which I think, yeah, uh, which is very important for um, saving the compute or maximizing performance. And yeah, one of the things that we mentioned in the episode with Ethan was that you kind of influence him to be more interested in scaling because at the beginning he was not that much into scaling, but but then maybe like a few years ago you told him that like scaling was going to be huge. So yeah, how did you got interested in scaling? Like yeah, what year or like what was the kind of thing that got you into it? Yeah. So I first got into machine. So I started reading machine learning papers around the summer of 2017. Uh, then Transformer paper was released. And I soon got into language modeling because I thought that would be the key for AGI. Then, yeah, I was almost immediately, and it took about several months to be convinced of Transformer language model replacing all the LSDMs in every application. Then I uh, I read a paper titled Exploring the Limits of Language Modeling, uh, which was released in 2016. Um, so this paper basically tro- uh, tries to scale up the size of LSDM and data set, set size to improve that publicity. And I read their generated text and that looks so much better than any of the text I saw, and the, the, their publicity is so much better. So it's kind of like a GPT-2 moment for me, except it was like 2017. So that's, uh, that's basically the uh, first scaling thing I saw. And there was also another paper titled, Deep Learning Scaling is Predictable Empirically. I think Ethan mentioned that. It was released in 2017 too. Uh, it shows that there's a parallel between uh, like training curves, performance, model size, and data set size. But that doesn't really tell you exactly how to scale up the models. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- then finally, there's GPT-2, which was in at the January of 2019. Yeah. yeah but, but by then, I was already convinced that scaling is going to be the key. Yeah, if you were convinced of scaling before Transformer or in 2017, then seeing like GPT-2 in beginning of 2019 must be, you know, enough or, yeah, like not a big update from, you know, 2017. Or at least like they showed that you could get like generation of paragraphs and a bunch of benchmarks in NLP with just scaling. Um. So yeah, did you did it surprise you a little bit, or were you not surprised at all from GPT two? No, uh, I was not surprised with GPT two at all because I was kind of working on a similar project with much smaller scale. So, like before uh, GPT two, uh, we language model researchers were working on better sampling techniques. So GPT two used, I think, top K sampling and temperature. So basically, these two were like rediscovered in 2018, and I was playing just playing with these new sampling methods. 
and so very much uh, so the generated text much better than any of anything I saw before. So um, yeah, I was not surprised with the result at all, but I was very happy. Yeah, do you want to tell us more about the project you were working on? Oh, um, at the time you mean um, oh, the, like the project I was working on in twenty nineteen. Yeah, so you, so you said it was a project that involved Kafka sampling or oh. like other methods that were not the same as GPT two. Oh yeah, um, it was not like a big project, so uh, I, I was just trying to use um, uh, Kafka sampling and temperature sampling on a small transformer language model I was training in 2018, then, um, yeah, the result was so much better. Yeah, so I, I guess that's all I can tell, but there's a project I did in 2019 uh, about scaling. Uh, yeah, it's called One Epoch is All You Need. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I, I, can, I, can I talk about this project? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, so um, basically, uh, okay, so nowadays we train a huge model on huge data set for one, uh, one or a few epochs. But back then, uh, we were training smaller models for many, many iterations uh, with very, very small data set. Even, even GPT-2, like GPT-2 used hundreds of, 100 epochs, I think. And so bad. Data, yeah, yeah, exactly. The data set wasn't that big, like only 40 gigabytes. Well, it was huge back then, though. Yeah. So the model size was only 1 billion, even though AI can totally uh, spend more money on that. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so basically this um, shift from uh, old days to today, it was... Um, was uh, this open AI's scaling paper and scaling allows for neural language model. And, you know, we have many other papers like Chinchira. Um, yeah. But uh, actually, uh, I, wrote, uh, I did a project in 2019 uh, where I sort of found all these nice scaling ideas by myself. So, and I wrote a paper called One Epoch is All You Need. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, okay, let me talk about that. Then, so the, um, so there, uh, I had a bunch of ideas and um, try to verify these ideas with experiments using very small amount of computes. Um, so first idea is that it is easy to enlarge the pre-training dataset so that one has to train only one or a few epochs. Uh, which dramatically improves the performance compute trade-off. So basically, I, I'm just ad advocating, uh, let's just try for one epoch and use <laughs> big data set. Yeah. And the second idea is, uh, is that, so let's compute the optimal ratio of model size and number of tokens for given compute budget based on training curves. So, Back then, the models were too small and they used too many iterations. So let's just 
you know, uh, adjust this ratio nicely so that we don't have to waste uh, all the computes for like hundreds of ebooks. So is the ratio model size and dataset size? Yeah, that's right. So um, actually, Chinchira uh, also did uh, measure this ratio. So basically, they uh, said that they uh, computed the scaling exponents for uh, optimal dataset size versus optimal model size, and they then they found that the scaling exponent for this uh, to uh, both 0.5. So that means uh, they both linearly increase. So uh, you can just measure the uh, slope of this line, which gives you the optimal ratio. Yeah, so basically you would need to scale your dataset size and model size the same amount. So if you want to um, you know, build GPT-4, you might just want to double the number of parameters and double your dataset size. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, r right now, so now we're not on 2019, 2020 uh, anymore. We're in 2022. Mm -hmm. And I believe, so you're working at Eleuther AI and um, Google as an intern um, on some scaling work. And I believe you might not want to talk about your um, private work on, on the podcast. But yeah, what kind of work uh, do you do publicly on, on scaling you won't be happy to talk about? Oh yeah, definitely. So, okay, let me think. So um, I'm currently very interested in uh, Instruct GPT and T0. So both of these... Could you maybe like summarize what's uh, T0 for people who are not read the paper? Oh yeah. So T0 is basically a masked language model uh, with multitask fine tuning. So first of all, masked language model is an usually an encoder only or encoder decoder model that is trained with a masked language model objective. So this uh, this training basically, so let's say you have a uh, some text, then you can randomly mask uh, as some random spans of tokens. So they uh, then you want your model to uh, predict these masked tokens. Yeah, that's basically a masked language model, or also called denoised autoencoding. Yeah, so um, that's what masked language model is about. And T0 is a masked language model that is also fine-tuned on a bunch of many, many data sets, uh, like maybe like SuperGlue. So um, what's SuperGlue? Oh, SuperGlue is a, is a standard uh, natural language understanding data set. Yeah, maybe it has not trained on, maybe they did not use SuperGlue for T0, but basically that's the idea. So and the reason why we want to fine tune T0 on uh, on a bunch of these data sets is that if you try in like this, then it generates it. Uh, um, obviously, it performs very well on the task it was fine-tuned on, but it also uh, performs very well on the tasks it was not fine-tuned on. So uh, we know that um, uh, GPT-like models 
uh, performs much worse than uh, the GPT-like model that is fine-tuned on the task you are trying to deal with. Right. So, yeah, basically, uh, this multi-task fine-tuning allows your model to perform very well on uh, the ta- not only the tasks you are uh, yeah, uh, it was trying on, but also the tasks it was not trying on. So T0 actually can perform much better than GPT-3 on many tasks um, without uh, without fine-tuning the model on this task uh, specifically um, while using like 10 times less compute than GPT-3. So is the idea that you train it on a bunch of different tasks so not fine-tuning, but you train it on a bunch of different tasks. That's, I think that's what you said, multitask training or multitask fine-tuning. Yeah, and, and then it's able to generalize well on held-out tasks. It, it, it doesn't seem before, like zero-shot. Exactly. And so you said you were interested in T0 and also InstructGPT. I believe InstructGPT was a model or... Um, a training procedure from OpenAI. Can yes. you tell us more about InstructGPT? Yeah. So InstructGPT um, is also fine-tuned on many different tasks, like T0. And it was, but it also uses um, uh, human feedback. So like basically, um, they train the model uh, to score uh, the a uh, bunch of the generated uh, ge- uh, generated results, and this model can like uh, tells this, tells this GPT three to how how to uh, better pro- uh, generate the uh, text. So this uh, this process is done by using reinforcement learning called PPO. So uh, this additional uh, component improves GPT-3 uh, significantly. Yeah, so basically, uh, even though GPT-3 doesn't perform as well as PAL, uh, given the amount of compute it it consumes, it performs very, very well on many different tasks uh, uh, without having to um, yeah, I think it performs very well even without using few short samples. So uh, yeah, GPT three, uh, sorry, uh, instruct GPT and T zero are some of the most like uh, compute efficient models out there. So yeah, I'm very interested in these models, and my project is basically trying to trying to combine all these with scaling. Right, so you kind of want to combine this RL from human feedback procedure from InstructGPT with the pre-training from T0. Yeah, and uh, I'm thinking that we can do some interesting scaling analysis on this model uh, for several reasons. First of all, uh, optimal scaling we do for GPT-like models. we usually try to optimize the uh, test application, and this model 
only has has only decoded, unlike T0, which has encoded and decoded. Uh, yeah, by the way, encoded decoder model performs much better than decoder only model when it is fine-tuned or multitask fine-tuned. And that's why I'm thinking of this encoded decoder model. And yeah, and for, for, for people who are not like into deep learning or NLP, so can you yeah, just give an example of, of decoder and encoder decoder? So I think GPT-2 is a decoder because it gets a prompt and then just like generates a, um, a paragraph. What's an encoder and decoder? Yeah, so encoder decoder is, um, so basically encoder is like the model the architecture used for BERT. Uh, yeah, or like uh, like the first transformer paper architecture. Um, and decoder is the, our usual decoder. So basically, you want to feed your prompt into encoder, and then you, you would feed the output uh, to the decoder with self-attention. That's what encoder decoder is, and it happens to perform very well uh, in this uh, situation. Yeah. So basically, uh, we have encoder decoder and fine tuning. Yeah. So uh, I think these elements make the scaling law very different from that of uh, GPT like models. Oh, yeah. And also, we want to optimize for. Uh, downstreaming performance instead of test publicity. Yeah. So I think these conditions force the model to be bigger and trained on, uh, trained shorter on pre-training, pre-training tasks because fine tuning is very, is so important that maybe we can, uh, make the model bigger while, uh, Focus less on the fine tuning, sorry, less on the pre-training, and I think this is. So if you make if you um, so the current state of the art model has like one hundred billion parameters, and trying on trillions of tokens, which is very different from how human brains run. No, because well, our brain has like. Uh, Hundreds of hundreds of billions of neurons, so meaning like one hundreds of trillions of uh, synapses. So yeah, I think it, that means it has more capacity, than, far more capacity than models do, and it is only trying on like a few billions of tokens because that's how many tokens we can process within our lifetime. So yeah, basically, I'm trying to make the models closer to how human brains learn. So you're trying to write a scaling law that would be closer to the amount of data humans process throughout their lifetime. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not like trying to make this forcibly similar to uh, humans, human brains uh, constraints. I'm, uh, I'm just thinking that this new model uh, based on uh, this T0 and interactivity, I think the, uh, it will perform the best 
uh, if we try it like how human brains learn. I'm not sure I understand like the the methods to have this scaling law. So would you need to, you know, train T0 with like some kind of instruct GPT fine tuning, and then you test on a bunch of held out tasks on of held out downstreaming tasks, and and then you would see like um, you would plot a curve of like optimal scaling um, with respect to those like downstreaming tasks. So basically, what I'm saying is to train a um, bunch of different. Uh, T0 with G- instruct GPT uh, fine tuning uh, with different number of tokens pre trained and different uh, model size. Then you can. Uh, I think I understood now. So you're, sorry, sorry, sorry. So you're trying to, um, the same as Chinchilla, like get the ex- exponents for data set size and for um, model size. And then you're trying to see if it's not, if, if it's not like 0.5 and 0.5, but like maybe. Something else? Yeah, something like that. I think you're most well-known um, for your scaling work at Eleuther AI, where you trained, um, was it 6 billion parameters? Or at least like um, you, you, you tried to reproduce the results from GPT-3, 6.7 billion. Yeah. And what was called GPT-J, I think for GPT-JAX. Um, yeah, can you just like give us a rough summary of like, this project, why you started this project, and um, yeah, what what do you want to release it release it to the public? Yeah, so uh, around the beginning of twenty twenty, um, I was trying to reproduce Dali one with some of the people in Adelta AI. Um, so basically, Dali one consists of BQBAE encoder decoder and Transform a language model for generating the discrete Latin, Latin variables. So, by the way, this uh, transform a language model is exactly, almost exactly the same as GPT-3, except for the size. So, uh, I thought we may be able to make the maximum impact if we uh, reuse this model for uh, G- our GPT-3 reproduction. Yeah. And then, um, at the same time, I thought, so JAX was becoming more and more popular. Obviously, JAX is optimized for TPUs, and we had a lot of TPUs back then. And JAX is, um, so before that, we had our GPT-3 replication, which is called GPT-NEO. And it was uh, implemented using Mesh TensorFlow, and this Mesh TensorFlow uh, decoding speed is so slow, uh, like uh, almost ridiculously slow, uh, especially compared with PyTorch. But JAX has no problem with that. It's almost as fast as PyTorch. So we decided to use uh, JAX for this project. And uh, yeah, so basically, uh, I, I was gonna, I was supposed to, um, work on the encoder decoder part. And I asked, uh, another guy in, uh, LFAI. His name is Ben Wang. 
and asked him to work on this language model side. But admittedly, he spent far more time on this project than I did. Yeah, how much how much time would you say it took you uh, among the like maybe like six months between like beginning of 2021 and when you guys released the model? I think it it only took like several months. So this project is kind of impressive because you know there are only two people in it, and it only spent like we only spent like three months, and we basically open source the uh, best uh, language model. Uh, yeah, uh, so that is something I'm proud of, and you're, you're right to be proud of this. It's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. So, um, by the way, a GPTJ is diff. Um, yeah, so basically, GPT Neo actually could not really uh, match that same uh, performance with the GPT three with similar size. Uh, it uh, GPT. Neo was like 2.7 billion model, but it was, it performed worse than 1, uh, 1 billion GPT-3, for example. But GPT-J uh, performs uh, pretty much as, as well as 6 billion uh, GPT-3. So, yeah, um, the model performs very well, I think. So it was able to be more efficient than GPT-Neo, which I believe is another model from Eleuther AI, but uh, using TensorFlow Mesh, so a bit older, right? Yeah. And yeah, so to match that performance from GPT-3, did you just like took the same hyperparameters and architecture from GPT-3 paper, or did you like had to change stuff to, you know, match the performance? Yeah, so um, I think we could use the exact same architecture with GPT-3. But we just wanted to do a bit more. So first of all, <laughs> yeah, uh, one thing we tried is uh, leisure width to deep depth ratio. So basically, by width, I'm referring to uh, the hidden dimension of uh, the model. Uh, so I'm we are trying to build a wider model uh, rather than deeper model. And uh, because this is important for uh, because generally speaking, wider models can utilize uh, accelerators uh, more efficiently, and uh, latency is much better. So, yeah, and uh, when we tried this wider model, we uh, observed that we don't really lose much of performance from this. So I think uh, we thought this is worth it. And another thing we tried is uh, placing feed-forward layer with attention layer in parallel. Yeah. Um, basically, this is um, this also saves latency. And you can also uh, make your accelerators uh, utilize better. And this was actually also adapted by Hub. So I think this is something uh, I think this is a nice contribution from this project. So you think Palm researchers read GPT-J and thought like, oh yeah, this architecture change is very good. We're going to use it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think they also sort of followed our uh, wide model because their model is also very, very wide. 
I think it's even wider than Alice. I I read the blog post wrote about GPTJ, and so I I kind of read about like all those tricks um, you did, and you talk a lot about throughput. So yeah, I'm curious like what's the yeah throughput for people who are not like scaling models all the time, and yeah, how does it compare you know uh, how does GPTJ com compare to like GPT three or GPT Neo in terms of throughput? Um, is it, is it more efficient, less efficient, more throughput, less throughput? Yeah, so by throughput, I mean the number of tokens processed per parameter per second. So uh, if we can improve this throughput, then we can try it with a larger model uh, or more tokens with the same amount of compute budget. So this, uh, this way you can improve the performance. So it's it's per so it's uh, amount of token processed per parameter and per second. Yeah. So uh, if you have more a lot of parameters, um, you you, you will. I, I don't know. Does the model size then change your throughput? Then. So yeah, I, I I guess you're only comparing like size models of the same size, so GPT three and GPT J. Yeah. So it's fine. So uh, typically throughput is defined something like flops per second. Uh, um, oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, maybe a bit confusing, but um, let's say you have a one billion model uh, require, uh, and you have a TPU, uh, one core. If it mm -hmm. spends one second per, let's say it spends one second per uh, one token, then. Um, uh, if you have two billion, two billion model and uh, one core TPU, then it will take um, 0.5 seconds because they have the same throughput and something like that. Gotcha. Yeah. So the throughput of the GPT J 6 billion model for training is like 150 tokens per second. Uh, uh, in the, uh, on the other hand, uh, GPT Neo with 2.7 billion parameters is uh, is all, also 150 tokens per second, but this model is uh, half the size of GPT J. So basically, uh, this means that we achieved uh, twice improvement in efficiency or throughput. So uh, yeah, I think this uh, different improvement is huge. I think it's coming from this wider model using JAX instead of mesh TensorFlow. Yeah, and uh, not to mention that GPTJ has much better downstream performance than GPT Neo. Yeah, how long did it take to complete like an entire training? Because I know it requires a lot of computes. Yeah, so we spent five weeks using. Uh, 256 cores of TPU V3. And yeah, what do you do during those five weeks? Do you just look at the TensorFlow curve and um, the nice tensor boards and yeah, check it doesn't have any weird spikes? Yeah, basically that's what we did. Uh, there was no bug because we already solved all the bugs. And uh, so basically Ben uh, babysit uh, this training for 
five weeks. He was complaining a bit, but he said it was not too bad. And then at the end, you published this, this, this model on GitHub. People are very excited and start to use it to fine tune to a bunch of different cases, right? Yeah, so we didn't really fine tune ourselves, but yeah, many people try to fine tune. It looks, uh, it appears that GPT-TJ uh, is more easier, e easier to deal with than other models like GPT-Neo. Maybe because of, because of our, the, the things we use like JAX is much easier to deal with than mesh tensorflow. So yeah, it became very popular. Yeah, it, from reading the documentation on GitHub, there's a manual on how to fine-tune it, and it seems like the overall code is easier to read as well. And even people on YouTube, like Yannick Kilsner, use it for their projects, like fine-tuning it on, on 4chan to generate more comments. Have you seen this um, recent YouTube video? And if, if so, what do you think about it? Yeah, I actually didn't watch the video itself, but I saw the tweet and there's some people talking about it. So I know it a little bit. So my reaction to this entire controversy is kind of like that meme of like entering to a burning room with pizza. So uh, I think his project is kind of cringy for being too attention seeking and obviously not really ethically sound because you can just use this have for many bad things. And I agree with some of the critical reactions to his project, even though some, some of them may be a bit too exaggerated. But at the same time, I hope um, this case would lead to more attention spent on a language model that can detect uh, outputs from other language models so that we, you can filter out uh, language model generated submissions in on many websites like Reddit. Yeah, like uh, Russian or Chinese government can use this sort of bots to influence social media and election results in the West. Um, but language models are very good at uh, discriminating language model outputs from human outputs. So I'm kind of optimistic about that, at least for short term. What do you think of the fact that publishing GPTJ might have accelerated, you know, AI timelines where we might have like less time to make AI safe and align those models with human values? Um, yeah, do you, do you think like releasing GPTJ was a net good for humanity? Like, would you have done it before uh, again if if you had to? Yeah, I think uh, releasing GPTJ was a small uh, net positive benefit for human humanity. And so basically open sourcing language model, uh, there's never like a, like, there's nobody who releases a language model that is so substantially better than the uh, previous state of the art. Uh, like in my case, uh, in our case, uh, our model performs only slightly a bit better than GPT-Neo. Yeah, or T5. So uh, I don't think uh, there was actually like accelerating the timeline or anything. It was just a, uh, yeah. So um, basically, I don't think there's any one particular person who can make 
big negative impact by releasing a big language model with the current trend. If there's anyone, then uh, who can make a big negative impact? It'll be some someone who like fine tune a model on to uh, spread misinformation. Yeah. Um, just but, just to be clear, the um, GPT Neo was also from Eleuther AI. So yeah. in some sense, if you remove GPT Neo and GPTJ, um, then you don't really have any open source implementation of the GPT three that works on the internet. And so maybe like you wouldn't have like all those other companies like Microsoft or Chinese or Korean companies using this implementation or even like the pile, the public data sets to train their models. So in, in some sense, we're kind of helping the entire research community go faster on those topics. And yeah, so maybe there are like other open source projects that that would emerge. Uh, but then the question is like, how much, you know, releasing GPTJ in 2021 accelerates uh, those timelines compared to the others. And I, I would say like um, OpenAI releasing the neural scaling laws or GPT-3 or even GPT-2 kind of showed that like scaling was important to get to AGI. So in some sense, they kind of released some secret sauce and everyone started following them. So, you know, if they didn't publish or publish a bit later, maybe the timelines would be a bit longer. What do you, what, what do you make of that? Yeah. So um, actually there was T5, uh, open source T5 before. But that's, that, that's not the same as GPT-3, right? That's right, but uh, you can fine tune the model, uh, like like GPT four chan. So yeah, I think uh, it was totally possible to do it um, before GPT Neo. I think there was GPT two rep reproduction uh, from right. several people, several different groups. Yeah, also uh, like uh, Facebook and Google. Uh, released some uh, decoder on the model that performs well. I don't think it affected on research because uh, researchers, um, I think every uh, all these big uh, com companies like Google, they already had uh, much better language models internally. And uh, people in academia, they cannot really affect. Uh, I don't think they had uh, those big language models before, but I don't think uh, they can really contribute to this, this large language model research because they don't have budget. So I don't think my our uh, projects really accelerated the research timeline, but I think, yeah, maybe slightly accelerated the open sourcing language model timeline. Yeah, maybe. Right. So you, you, you accelerate the open source timeline, but not the um, private research timelines. So in some sense, you bring everyone on the same level. So yeah, definitely our work is slightly accelerating the pace of open sourcing language models. For example, Facebook recently released 100 full-size GPT-3 model. Um, maybe it, that was a, and yeah, maybe that was, was a response to our GPT-J or GPT-NeoX model, which was released Recently, it has about 20 billion model uh, parameters. And I think this question of accelerating open source timelines, or at least AI research in general, is important in the context of differential progress. So not only 
accelerating AI progress, but how does the speed of AI relate to the speed of AI alignment research? And I'm not sure if you're very familiar with AI alignment, but in this podcast, we talk about this a lot and it might be worthwhile maybe defining alignment or at least like going with another definition you're familiar with. So, um, yeah, what do you understand of the concept of alignment? Like, how, how would you define it um, if, if you had to? Yeah, well, uh, as you know, admittedly, I, uh, I'm, I'm a beginner on alignment. So uh, all I can say, uh, if I understand correctly, is alignment research is the research to harness uh, advanced AI to do what we want to do. And one big problem is considered is the existential risk due to advanced AI. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. And I think the question is, if we have an AI that is much smarter than humans and doesn't really care about our values, it might end up, you know, optimizing for an objective and just, you know, change completely our planet without really caring about humans or uh, stuff we, we, we value. And I guess this problem might be considered um, harder or easier um, depending on yeah, how you define the problem or how much time you think humans will have to think about uh, those problems. And one of those takes is that if you only consider um, alignment as like an AI problem, if, if we want to solve AI generally um, and um, have models that are able to generalize well, um, if, if we program them well, they will be able to like solve um, alignment if, if we, you know, build them, if we build like good models, they will be aligned by default. And I guess that's maybe like one of the, is that maybe one of your takes as well or something you you think will happen? Yeah. So um, for short term, I think uh, we can uh, more or less try to, you know, uh, be careful with training, like uh, what anthropic or like open AI is doing. But in long term, uh, which is what, Ethan was referring to, like, when AI is trying to deceive humans. I think that's when uh, we can no longer, like, uh, use the conventional machine learning approach to deal with. Because, you know, if, uh, if the AI is much more intelligent than humans, then we, can, we have no way to uh, detect whether the model is deceiving or not. Yeah, so that's something I'd be worried about. Yeah, I guess the question is, when you have a benchmark, how do you know if the model is not pretending to be good at the benchmark? Or is it like genuinely genuinely good at the benchmark? So if your benchmark is truthful Q&A, is it actually truthful or is it just like pretending to be truthful for the moment? And one of the things that um, Ethan was saying is that um, all alignment can be considered as inverse scaling problems. So if you make your model too big, at some point it will, you know, have bad properties. Um, and 
Yeah. So if you're interested in scaling, you can see that as a scaling problem. So like a, a good behavior for, for scaling. Yeah, I agree. Um, so in terms of benchmarks, you said that um, for models that can be deceptive, it can be hard to write down a good benchmark because they might be able to bypass it. Um, do you think we might reach a point where we'll be able to have good evaluations and good ways to understand if our, metal, if our models uh, behave correctly or not? Yeah, uh, this is going to be here at some point. Uh, there's gonna uh, this there's gonna be no like conventional machine learning benchmark that can detect AI uh, to be malicious or not. Yeah, I think more generally, like benchmarks are quite tricky, especially for language models and NLP, where if you just like change the beginning of a word, like if you make the first letter capitalized or not in your benchmark, or if you just like change the code base from one GitHub repo to another, you might get completely different results in your benchmark. So um, you know, do you think it's possible to, to have like good NLP benchmarks to evaluate uh, language models in, in, in the future and especially for alignment? Yeah, um, obviously they, um, we need better benchmark uh, for NLP models, even outside of the alignment problem even for short term, like uh, sometimes we use automa automatic matrix to evaluate the quality of text, but it, they tend to be not really well coordinated with uh, human judgment. So uh, I'm ad advocating for the use of human judgment, but even human judgment uh, sometimes is not very useful because humans do, do not really understand uh, whether the Gen, uh, generated text is factual or not because, well, most of us is not really an expert on the uh, field uh, uh, that mo uh, the model is talking about. So, yeah, uh, and for alignment, um, I think for short term, we can probably like manage to uh, make, make up some nice benchmark using human evaluations. And if we if it doesn't work, then we will probably make use some uh, train the model to evaluate because we can we can't uh, understand what uh, like 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 my example humans are not uh, good at judging the quality of models anyway. And then, but at some point, I think that even training models to evaluate model is not enough because. At, at the point, the models are so much better than uh, humans are, and we we don't un understand the model, and we cannot detect the whether the model is being malicious or not. So in that case, yeah, that's a, that's gonna be a big problem, I think. Yeah, I think you're right that it's hard to evaluate fully a model if you're not an expert on the domain, and. I think one of the things that we can do is what they did for Instruct GPT when where they had like a bunch of labelers and people giving evaluations for how much they prefer one output compared to the others. And then you can roughly build a reward model that can say if an output is good or not. 
because you have like all those comparisons between different outputs. And yeah, for alignment where you you're you're basically saying that you would want like an AI or another language model to evaluate if the other one is is answering correctly or not. And at that point you're you're kind of doing what people say is bringing a small uh, Godzilla to check if the bigger Godzilla is is doing good or not. And the so that was like a from a a blog post that was published recently. And the problem with that is that at the moment when you're like bringing uh, Godzilla to um you know manage the other bigger one, there's already a problem because now you have two <laughs> Godzillas on in your city. Um and <laughs> So that's why I think it's yeah it's a tricky problem to try to align or at least check for deception in in those large models is because if you want to like have another model do it then you need to check this smaller model um and yeah so yeah what do you make of like AIs aligning AIs do you do you think us humans will will, will be able to like um you know build this like smaller model um, supervising the other bigger ones. Yeah, I think that that is what's going to happen for short term. Obviously, uh, we cannot keep doing that for long term because, well, in in long run, AI is going to be so much more, so much smarter than we are. So we we can no longer like uh, make make sure that whether this small model is uh, doing what we are thinking it's doing. Yeah, so like at, at the point, we need an entirely different intervention. Uh, I'm talking in really long time, so it's probably well after AGI. And at that point, my, my guess is that something like we have to argument our own intellectual capacity with something like neural network or something. So we become the uh, AI itself. <laughs> have, you, have you heard of something like that? So something like merging with AIs after yeah. um, maybe like some kind of rail, curse rail scenario where you upload yourself or uh, maybe like connect with brain-computer interfaces to AIs. I think that's more like the Elon Musk Neuralink scenario. Yeah. Which uh, scenario are, are you talking about? Oh, um, I'm not really familiar with Neuralink. Maybe the first one. Okay, um, so when you were saying like long term, um, and you were saying like after AI, so the, you, at the beginning of the podcast you were saying twenty twenty eight and twenty thirty eight were like lower bound and upper bound for AI, or at least like the rough guess for when it might appear. Is, is that still correct? Yeah. Oh, um, so um, by that timeline, I meant like human level language model rather than AGI. Uh, so okay, like, human level language, language model, and and yeah, how like how many years to go from human level language models to AGI? I think it's gonna take very little amount of time, given that this uh, human level language model can do uh, machine learning research uh, well, so it can uh, improve itself very rapidly. Okay, so you when you reach human level. 
language models, they need to do research and then you need to age. then they achieve AGI. Is that your kind of main timeline? Yeah. And so this might happen in days or, or weeks? Uh, maybe several, several months. Yeah. Several months, okay. Um, yeah, what would be like the bottleneck at that moment? Like they just like keep improving and but then they need to like figure out how to convince humans to help them build more hardware or would they um i don't know <laughs> build the robots themselves like, yeah so how, how would it happen hardware part is going to be the bottleneck i think um yeah also uh, collaborating with humans yeah convincing and uh, that's going to be yeah the main bottleneck Okay, so if you're listening to this podcast in 2028 and you have language models convincing you to build more, you know, GPU centers and um, let them, you know, make post requests all over the web, please don't. It's a bad idea. They're trying to um, do more ML research. So you heard it first here. Um, yeah, so when we when were talking about like connecting to neural networks and have our brains um, maybe like become AI or merge with AI, were you talking about something closer to brain-computer interfaces as well? Yeah. Um, so then the question becomes like, will kind of this timeline of human slash... Um, human plus AI intelligence like compared to like just pure AI intelligence. So will the humans be able to keep up a bit and you know understand what's going on or will they be left behind? What, what, what do you think? Yeah. So I think yeah we should um, control the pace of improvement in, in a way such that we can catch up with uh, the uh, Pure natural, uh, pure uh, AI. Um, so yeah, we should absolutely make sure that uh, we don't. Uh, we can keep the same pace. I think. The problem is that we don't really control that, as there are not that many brain computer interface researchers. There's not a lot of funding in there, and the rate of progress in AI is accelerating a lot. And if the problem is in you know neuroscience are much harder than you know scaling models <laughs> then um even if we if we throw like a lot of money at it it's going to be very hard to solve yeah that's true but um so my guess is that agi is not going to be so like uh malicious for short plan so i'm thinking of using agi to improve this kind of research for the beginning, at the, at the beginning, uh, what what do you think? So basically, you use a very smart language model, like some kind of oracle where you ask questions and it gives like very good answers with like documentation and papers. And you ask him like, "Hey, how do I build a good brain-computer interface?" And it gives you good answers. And then you go on and you start building that. The problem is that at the moment when you have this kind of model, 
you can also ask it like, hey, how do I build a better copilot? How do I build a bigger language model? And I guess people might want to do this first. And you might also need to you know, develop new robotics or you know, actual hard tech uh, microscope and um, neuroscience tools to do those and it's not going to be like only like a neural network architecture um so i guess it's always like the hardware part is going to take longer than the um just like software or neural networks part yeah that's true we may have to um uh regulate the behavior of agi so that we can keep the pace together. How do you regulate that? Um, we need some physical access to AGI first, but the AI, um, like physically preventing the models being scaled up too fast. Um, so you, you, you basically have an AI become the president and, and, and then like implement some security measures to prevent people from building bigger AIs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure people would agree, but um, yeah, that's one of the scenarios. I guess there's like different, like bad or, or like nuanced scenarios that could happen. One is like authoritarian good somehow where you have like one AI governing and, and then we do what we need to do to have a safe situation. The bad situation is, you know, when the AI does whatever it wants and doesn't really care about humans, like a rogue AI self-improving. And um, and then there's like another situation where, you know, humans are kind of free to do whatever they want and, and then things can be good or bad, but uh, it will depend on like kind of how the market behaves. Um, but yeah, a, a lot of people have been talking about um, Kind of the AI is a dictator scenario. Which scenario do you, do you find more likely or more, um, you know, you're more like optimistic about? Like, imagine you're in this like post AGI world or human level uh, language model world. Um, what do you kind of imagine the world will look like? Would um, humans still live like 80 years? Um, would there be like a lot of crime? Would that be solved with like some kind of dictator AI? I think we, we're going to try to uh, prevent dictator AI from happening. Um, we'd probably just try to maintain the current democracy. Um, yeah, because, you know, most people fear, fear AI anyway. I think we're going to do our best to prevent that whether we like it or not. So hopefully we can like argument, uh, like like we can do that thing we propose. I, I propose like the, I suggested like the um, improve, we can improve our intellectual capacity. Uh, then we can just continue our democratic uh, process. Um, yeah, that's my hope, but. Yeah, I think that's a a great note of of positivity to 
um, end the podcast on, so then people can decide for themselves what they what future they think would be a good one for them. Um, yeah, it was a, a pleasure to to have you on on the show and hearing about your research on on scaling and your thoughts on alignment, even though you're not a um, an expert in this. Um, do you, do you want to quickly give um, your Twitter? for people to, to follow one of the AKs? Yeah. So, um, oh, I guess you can just post my uh, Twitter username uh, somewhere. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm tweeting about uh, the latest uh, machine learning papers almost every day um, with some uh, summaries. So please uh, follow me on Twitter. Thanks for listening to um, this podcast. Right. I think your Twitter ID is something like Aran Kumatsusaki, or is it different? Oh yeah, it is. Cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably post it in in the bio somewhere. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the show, and yeah, I hope you keep on on doing some cool research for Elder AI, and hopefully uh, not accelerating too much the <laughs> AI timelines. Thanks, yeah. Aran, and see you maybe in the, in the next episode. <laughs>